0: This is absolutely sobering to stand here in front of you today. Um as Passo has communicated, we um we love this church. We uh uh have been absolutely humbled uh, and excited to see God at work. You know, um Paso used to come over to our house, and as he said, and really it is not an exaggeration, it's not hyperbole that Paso says that he spent a lot of time at our house. Uh, we, uh, we spent many hours together, and uh, you know, one of the significant things, pa- Meg and I knew Paso was having a good time when he would. Does <laughs> 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 he still do that? <laughs> yeah, Meg and I used to chuckle a lot and uh and and passo um, passo was also very um specific about his cuts of meat. Have you noticed that as well? Uh, we would uh, throw on the cheapest sausages with the large family that we would have and uh paso in his his uh good way <laughs> would bring his own uh, <laughs> Paso taught me how to barbecue uh, coming over from America. I was not a good barbecuer, and paso's taught me how to how to barbecue a piece of meat so i'm grateful brother Paso told us that um we needed to meet a friend of his named Wilsey, and uh, uh early on and and we had the distinct privilege of walking with paso and then meeting Wilsey. and paso has introduced us to quite a few wonderful friends and you know some of the dearest of our friends um outside of our family would reside here at this church uh, if there was a tragedy or there was something serious that was to take place, we would pick up the phone and ring probably somebody here. Uh, but one of the people that he introduced us to was wilsey, And the funny thing is, is we met Mark and Bianca. Are they in here? Oh, they are. Bummer. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> one of the funny things about Wilsey and Bianca was we met them right on the back end of their honeymoon. I mean, like, I think they drove to... Uh, the college and we were introduced and we clicked, just clicked straight away. But they used to come over regularly as well. And man, dude, uh, you know those things where you know somebody and you want to say something but you don't say something because you don't want to ruin the friendship. But I really wanted to say, like, seriously, guys, can you just keep your hands to yourself for just a minute? Like, really? Like, come on, seriously. I know you're married. <laughs> and uh, but you know what? In in that, in 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 that. For Meg and I, who had kids and you know had were just sort of juggling things, it was so awesome to see this couple freshly in love and um, enjoying the gifts of marriage and and encouraging us, but yet they had a real strong love for the gospel as well, their speech and their and their thinking and their um, commitment to each other and the way that they valued each other just was a real encouragement for Meg and I in our marriage, and so we are so grateful for them. And then after, you know, spent time with Paso, I'd spent time with Wilsey, and then I had the pleasure of meeting Dave Taylor. Now, guys, he's not here, so I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. When I met him, I was really suspicious. He made me nervous. I thought, how in the world could somebody so skinny be so joyful? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, like really, there's something wrong. (laughs) But uh, as I got to know him, uh, man, that guy has the best sense of humor. And he can make anybody feel at ease. He has a real gift. And uh, meeting him... has been incredible um, for my wife and I. After we met Day, we then had the privilege of meeting Emma. And you just look at that couple and you just think, smokes, Lord. Thank you for them. Thank you for them. Thank you for putting them together. Thank you for the children that you've given them. Thank you for their heart and their understanding of the gospel. Thank you for rescuing them on their highway to hell. Thank you for intercepting them and revealing your truths to them because they are called and set apart to do something awesome and they have been doing it and been giving of themselves. And so Meg and I are very, very grateful. If we were to um, think of how we would use our leisure time and who we'd want to spend time with, it would be, you know, with with them. They're just a wonderful source of encouragement. And I, as Will Paso said, Meg and I have had the privilege of... Um, I meet with Dave quite regularly, and um, Meg has been meeting with Emma, and man, every time we go away from that, we're thinking, when can we get together again? Because they're just a real uh, source of encouragement and and strength for us. So church, I say all that to let you know that you, and I don't want to sound arrogant in saying this, and I don't want you to feel guilty about me saying what I'm about to say, but I want you to remember that what you have as a church, what you experience here as a church. Is very unique and very special. And please continue to thank God for what you have. Please thank God and hold your pastor and his family up and this leadership team. Do you know what's incredible about your leadership team that is rare? Your leadership team is gospel-centered. That's rare. I'm a pastor in a Baptist church in a Baptist denomination. And I would say to you, You are blessed to have a core team, a leadership team, a pastoral team who is committed to the gospel. There's not going to be a compromise. They're gospel-centered. That affects their marriages, that affects their life, and that affects the leadership of this church. Don't grow weary in praying for your church leadership. That is awesome, having a gospel-centered leadership. So... I want to encourage you to continue to put them before the Lord. Um, Jesse, Finn, would be a guy that um, if God was to give us another child, we would take Jesse. (laughs) A tatted, pierced dude, you know. And you know what's incredible is our boys um, love Jess. Um, They look up to him, and he's a great guy. Loves the gospel. Brendan, my first exchange with Brendan, man, all I remember was, dude, that guy's intense, man. <laughs> he is intense. <laughs> it's kind of like his eyes beat into your soul. <laughs> okay, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I haven't got to spend much time with Mike Thompson, but my observation of Mike Thompson is God has gifted him in a way that is different than the rest of the core team but he has some gifts that are just incredible the guy has a brain on him the guy is just again so i've been nervous about what he's going to how he's going to be you know afterwards make sure you listen carefully cuz i want to make sure i get it right but uh, seriously guys you're you're blessed and and, and so I, we rejoice with you Megan and i and as a family we rejoice at what god's doing because we're keen to mind it Kingdom-minded, we see God at work here, and we, we thank the Lord for that. Now listen, this morning, my job isn't to talk about your, your great leadership team, though I love them, and I think that's wonder, they're, they're wonderful, but this morning, we have the distinct privilege of gathering around God's Word and opening up and considering it. So what I thought we would do this morning is I wanted to come and encourage you. I'm probably not going to tell you anything new that you haven't ever heard before. But what I want to do is I want to take time to remind you. So we're going to look at a very familiar story. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 32. But what I'd like to do before we do that is I'd first of all like to pray. We're going to do something maybe a little bit different. I don't know if you do this before, have done this before or not, but we're going to grab our Bibles together. We're going to stand together, and we're going to read this passage, and then we're going to sit down and work our way through it. So would you pray with me first, and then let's stand, and we'll read Luke 15. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are and for loving us and drawing us to yourselves. Lord, we each have a story about how you have intercepted us on the highway to hell. Your loving kindness has reached out to us, called us by name, called us your child, made us co-heirs with Christ, That is scandalous, but we thank you for it Lord, we desire that others would know this truth And we pray this morning that as we review this story, we would once again be reminded of what causes you great joy And great delight be with us. I pray in jesus name amen Take your bibles and turn to luke chapter 15 and we're going to start at verse 1 But we're not going to read the whole chapter, but would you stand with me? Luke chapter 15, verse 1, starting at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. Now jump down to verse 11. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And then he had spent everything, and when he had spent everything, excuse me, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and and put shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Why don't you take your seats? Do any of you like um, surprises? I I enjoy a surprise. Uh, I experienced one just uh, not very long ago. Um, My birthday was last month, and my wife had organized a trip for um, us, the two of us, to go away to Melbourne. And so she'd organized tickets, and she'd organized... um, um, the kids, and she'd organized uh, uh, for us to go see that show, that theater show Les Mis, and uh, she told me about what was going to happen, and I was so surprised. We had the greatest time. It was the week before the aerial ping pong grand final, so we went over there that week. We got to see AFL, you know, celebrity. We actually got to be like Mark and Bianca, was just fantastic. We, <laughs> we got to and And it, we just had a we had a blast and it was it was a great surprise now listen, there are some surprises though that don't turn out so well. There are surprises that can happen when um, it doesn't turn out the way that you'd hoped that it would turn out. in fact, in fact, you know sometimes on your favorite reality show, there can be a twist and it not turn out the way that you'd hope for, and, and you don't feel good about it. Uh, it can be that your football team loses in the last two seconds of the, of the game. Uh, it could be that um, uh, you show up for work to find out that you won 't have a job because the company's downsizing. It could be that you go to the doctor and get the test results back, and you actually find out that you are ter- you 're facing terminal illness. Surprises are good, and surprises are bad. Surprises also can be unexpected delights that can, be, uh, that can also turn into unexpected hardships and difficulties. Surprises can be unexpected delights or they can be unexpected hardships and difficulties. But those hardships and difficulties can lead to unspeakable, unspeakable rejoicing. In Luke chapter 15 here, um, this, the original hearers, how would the original hearers Understood this story they would have been surprised on many fronts in the way that Jesus decided to tell this story You see the Bible the Bible is a Middle Eastern Book an ancient Middle Eastern book Its truths are set in the cultures and and in at, at which are very different than how we live now And so this story would have been full of of, of surprises. And yet, what's so incredible is that when we read the Bible, whatever the Bible meant to the people back then, it's just, it has the same meaning for us today. You know, reading scripture today in our personal quiet times, it can be done quite quickly. We can just kind of rush through things and not pick up on on the settings or the or the history. And when we do that, we miss out on these incredible golden nuggets that are embedded in scripture. Seep deep within these details, however, of this story. There is incredible meaning and revelation So why this parable? Why is it so surprising? Why is it so rich? It's because these Middle Eastern peasants have cultural convictions that we, today, in 2014, Sydney, Australia, we don't have these same convictions. We don't have these same um, commitments or attitudes. So as Jesus tells the last of these three parables of lost items we begin to see how this story is full of twists and turns and unexpected outcomes. And for some, the surprise is good. And for some, the surprise is not so good. Jesus has now been ministering for about two and a half, almost three years time when we get to this scene. He has been ministering and he's been calling men and women to the kingdom of God to repent and be saved before he actually goes to the cross. So this story is pre-cross. It's pre-resurrection. It's pre-ascension. But he is calling men and women to enter the kingdom of God through repentance and faith in him as the Messiah. And while he has been doing this, Jesus has been accumulating some enemies. Jesus has been accumulating enemies who aren't happy about what he is preaching and about what he is teaching. So, who are these people? Well, they're the uh, Pharisees and scribes. Why don't the scribes and Pharisees like Jesus? They don't like him because... He's confronting them. He's confronting them on their hypocrisy. He's confronting them on their lack of love for him, on their lack of understanding of who he is and his mission. And they don't like it. Interesting, though, that the worst possible thing that Pharisees could actually say about Jesus was that Everything that he did, raising people from the dead, healing people, uh, calling people out to have repentance, delivering people from the demoniac, the only reason that he could do that is because he's doing it with Satan. That was the worst thing that they could say about him. So instead of supporting Jesus, they're saying, actually, he's with Satan. He's from the devil. That's how he can do all of this. And so it's no surprise in verse 1 where we see that he says, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Because see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they walk around in their holy garb holding up yellow cards or red cards. You broke the law. You broke the law. And here Jesus is accepting them. Jesus is eating with them and receiving them. You see, when you can accept somebody in, the, in, in, in Middle Eastern culture, when you accept someone, you eat with them. And Jesus is eating with them. And this is bothering the Pharisees and the scribes. You don't do that. You don't eat with those people. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they try to attack him by saying he's with the devil. So... In this crowd, we read that there are Pharisees and scribes and tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus begins to tell a story, to tell stories to these people. He tells a story of a shepherd who has lost a sheep. He's got a hundred sheep, and one of them's lost, and he leaves the 99, and he goes and he gets the one. And he concludes. That there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he follows with another story of a, a woman who has lost a coin and she cleans out her whole house. She lights a lamp and she finds it and she calls her friends to celebrate. And he concludes that story with, I tell you, there is joy before the angels over a sinner Repents. Do you remember what Jesus concluded? How he concluded chapter 14? He concludes chapter 14 by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Will they hear? What Jesus is revealing in these stories, my friends, is what brings God joy. Do you not want to know what brings God joy? What brings God joy, it's the recovery of sinners. That is what brings God joy. And yet the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't get it. They don't understand what brings God joy. They think it's by fulfilling the law and fulfilling the duty, by being dutiful. But that isn't what we see here. We don't see that in the story. This is not what Jesus is revealing in the story of God. God takes great delight in the recovery of sinners. Can I ask you, do you consider what causes God to be content? What causes God to be satisfied? What causes God to be joyful? My dear friends, it is the recovery of sinners. It's the recovery of someone who surrenders themselves and says, I can't do this on my own anymore. I can't do it. I don't even want to try to do this on my own. I'm not able. I need a savior. And here we come to stage left, Enter the story of the lost son. You know, there is an unexpected, surprising request that the hearers would have noticed when Jesus begins this story. Verse 11 says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. That's not the surprising bit. The surprising bit is when they said, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. That doesn't happen in Middle Eastern culture. That doesn't happen. A younger son needs to find his place in the lineup. And the second brother is not the first and for a son to come to his father and say, Father, give me my share of the estate. What? You don't do that. It's not possible. I had to do an assignment for Well, it's not possible because it, it, he did it, but it's, it, should, it ought not be done. I had to do an assignment for um, a cross-cultural communications class that I took. And um, what we had to do was we had to get with another couple or another family who uh, have come to Australia and have been part- participating in Australian worship and ask them for their observations about how we, as Australians, do worship compared to how they practice church at home. That was a sobering experience for me. I um, interviewed a Ghanaian couple And uh, this Ghanaian couple have both been in Australia for quite some time, and they are a part of my local church. And so in asking them um, about their observations of our church and the way we do things, it's completely different. And there is a dissatisfaction in the way that we do church, but also there are some things that they really enjoy about how we as Australians do worship. But in asking them this, one of the things that we began talking about is just culturally how they do things. And the importance of family, like the way that they spoke of their parents was with the greatest of honor. And I'm sitting there going, oh, wow, that's that's quite incredible. That's, in fact, somewhat confronting to me. And um, I asked the, um, they were telling us about different experiences, and the wife had said that her parents were sending her away to go to boarding school. And um, she said that her mother called her into the room and said, her name and said whatever you do you don't shame the family name and i'm thinking well why would why would you be worried about that and so i said to this lady i said so how did that make you feel and she looked at me like i was an idiot it wasn't the first time i've been looked at like i was an idiot but she looked at me and said patrick you don't ask yourself how this makes you feel You go and you figure out how you're not going to bring shame to the family name. It's not about your feelings. It's not whether you think it's right or wrong. How are you going to honor your parents? Here, the son is actually dishonoring his father in indescribable ways. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are listening to this story, as well as the tax collectors and the sinners are listening to this story, they can both relate to it because some of them have dishonored their family name and some of them know that you ought not dishonor your family name. And there is a consequence for dishonoring your family name. So what is the father going to do? Well, what does it say? He divided uh, verse, uh, not, uh, yep, so verse 12, the father give me my share of the property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them. Folks, this isn't the time of ATMs and computers and accountants and all this other good stuff. Like he had to go and divide what his son was asking for and what his son is actually asking for isn't money. The son is asking for the buildings, for the cattle, for all the things that are going to give him the cash that he needs so that he can go and do what he wants to do. And the father does it. What? That's ludicrous. Why would the father divide up the estate? Well, he does. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered this property and reckless living. Folks, in this, the father dividing the property between them, the division is not half. Here's half and you take this half. That wasn't the way it worked. The oldest son got a bigger portion. And to be honest, what you might not know about the Middle Eastern culture is any father at any stage could give his child anything that he wants to. And he could say, so Paso's dad could say to him, Paso, I'm going to give you this. This is going to be yours. And he's 12 years old. He's still living under his father's roof. Paso then knows that that property is mine and he will work and tend and build that up. The father That's Paso's. It's his. Any stage in Middle Eastern cultures, you can do that. Clearly, from this story, we don't know whether the father has actually said, that's yours. Clearly not, because the son's asking for it. Give me what's mine. And then the father has divided it up. When he had to divide it up, he basically had to gather money so that he could leave. He had to have time to see if he could sell it off so that he could get the resources that he needed to go away. And he squandered his property in reckless living. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes right there would be thinking, yeah, that's no joke. Of course he would have squandered his, his, uh, all of everything that he had on reckless living. He got rid of all that he had to fulfill the desires in his heart. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. Isn't that just the way that it is sometimes? Isn't it the way that it is sometimes where we exhaust everything? We exhaust all that we have. We get what we want. We run away as far as we can, and we're left with nothing. We've run to a far country, and then something happens. A crisis happens. And he begins to be in need. But you know what? Instead of running back to dad, he does something even worse. After the shame that he's already caused his dad, dividing the estate, shaming his father, he now begins to be in need. And so he went and hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Okay, now, he's a Jew. He's gone to Gentile territory. You don't do that. The Jews before they came into. If they had to go and leave. The place. Before they came back in. They would take their garbs. And they would shake it off. To make sure they got all the Gentile filth off of them. And here the son is running. And he's in need. And he hires himself out to a Gentile. But not just any Gentile he hires himself out to someone who then sends him to feed the pigs. Can the picture get any worse that Jesus is describing of this lost son? Really? How much worse can it be? Shaming the father and now living with pigs, an unclean animal? They're unclean! This guy is completely unclean in everything in every way, shape, and form. He was so hungry that he wanted to eat the food that the pigs were eating. Some commentarians think that, you know, actually in fact he was actually fighting the pigs. He was actually trying to fight the pigs off to get into the trough so that he could eat because he was in so much need. Now, I don't know if that's true. I wasn't there. But you know what? He was hungry. What would you do? It's a long walk home. No one gave him anything. And when he came to himself in that lowly, desperate place, he thinks, how many... Of my hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Can I tell you something right here? This is a description of the father. He wanted to run away from his father and get as far away from his father. His request isn't necessarily just communicating, um, you know, uh, that I want to go live my life. He's saying, Dad, get out of my way. You're in my way. You're stopping me from doing what I want to do. So give me what I have so that I can go and do this. He's rejecting his father's love. He's rejecting being able to live in the in in the pleasures of what his father has provided for him, and he wants to be on his own. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? This dad was doing well, and he took very good care of his hired servants. But here the son says, I perish with hunger. So I know what I'll do. I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. You know what? The Pharisees and the scribes would be going, yeah, that'd be right. You should be getting off your backside and going back and groveling to your parents, to your dad. You have done the wrong thing. Ah, that'd be right. Yep, you would go and blow everything. So the son rehearses what he wants to say. And he even thinks, you know what? Treat me as one of your hired servants. You know, in those traditions, there was variations of servants. A servant would be the lowest. This servant that he's describing would be the lowest type of servant. He's not asking to be a servant that's treated well, but just so that I can get what I need. I'm willing to go in at that level. And so there he gathers his strength and he begins his journey home. And you'll forgive me and excuse me if I get emotional here, but as he goes home, it says here that Jesus has described his father as coming while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and kissed him. Friends, this right here would have been not what the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders would have been accepting. But not only them, the sinners and the tax collectors would have known that this is not the way the father would have responded. That's not culturally how you respond when your child has been this, this rebellious, this stubborn, this way. That is not how culturally you would accept a child back. What this verse 20 tells us is many things. But one of the things that it tells us is that the father saw him a long way off. You know, again, when a son would leave you in that way in the ancient Near Eastern times, you could in some cases actually have a burial and bury your son. So you're you're acting as though he's dead. But this father clearly has been watching, hoping that in some way, somehow, his son would have returned to him. And so the son, he sees his son coming and he does something that noblemen don't do. Noblemen don't run. They have dresses, dresses that go to the ground. He is a very important, stately, nobleman. He would be well-respected within the community. Now, look, from what I understand, for men who wear dresses, like, you can't run in dresses. There's a few reasons why you ought not run in dresses. Can you think of some? You don't want to show your legs. Do you know there are actually books on how men are supposed to wear dresses in ancient Middle Eastern times? There are rules and restrictions on how a man is supposed to walk around in a dress. And some of the things that you don't do is you don't show your legs. In fact, did you know that in the temples, when, the, um, when they were cutting the sacrifices, if they had to get to the altar, they weren't even allowed to pick up their dresses to step over the blood. They weren't able to lift up their dresses to get over a thorn bush. You weren't allowed to lift up your dress. But this father sees his son coming from a long way off and he runs. Now, the Greek word is he's running as if he's in an Olympic race. He is sprinting. Okay, so let's imagine running. Sprinting? How high are you going to have to hike that thing up? (laughs) What are you going to be exposing? Don't imagine it. But look, I mean, it's not pretty. The guy is sprinting to his son. That should not happen. And the Pharisees and the scribes would be hanging on what Jesus is saying, thinking this father is not helping his son. This father is not giving this son the treatment that he deserves. But the father runs to this son a long way off. Why does he run? He runs because he wants to take the shame on He wants the shame to be on him. He wants to get to his son before the rest of the community get to him. And they shame him. And they throw things at him. And they smack him. And they hurt him because they're upset that he shamed the father. What should happen is this son should crawl home and he should wait outside his father's window outside begging and pleading for his dad to accept him back. That's what should happen. But instead the father hikes up his dress and sprints to his son and he covers him and embraces him and kisses and hugs. My friend, do you understand what that meant in Middle Eastern times? Full, complete reconciliation. Full and complete reconciliation for the pharisees and scribes this is disgusting this is not the way that things should be happening look with me at verse 20 uh, 20 and he i want you to see this and he arose and came to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him wait a minute where's the speech Where's the speech that he rehearsed in the pig pen? son hasn't had time to say, Dad, I'm sorry. son hasn't had a chance to give this rehearsing of, I've done everything wrong. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Oh, he says it. Look at the love of the Father. Friends, this is not something I understood. This is not the way that I understood God to work. No, I had to work it off. Surely I had to be better. I had to read my Bible more. I had to do things in order to be reconciled. Here, the father is hugging and embracing and kissing his son and fully showing the community that my son is home and he is fully reconciled. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's as if the father doesn't even hear what his son is saying. And the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and, the be- and, and, and shoes on his feet. A ring on his hand. Get the robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. You know, church, this is significant. Because you see, this robe is reserved for the oldest son on his wedding day. The ring is a family seal. Shoes, not for servants, for noblemen. It's communicating something. Full reconciliation. The son's not having to work off anything. He's not having to have a trial, a period of waiting, a testing time. He's fully and completely restored. Scandalous. Absolutely scandalous, friends, that the Father would be behaving like this. And this is a surprise for the Pharisees and the scribes. And it's a surprise for the tax collectors and the sinners to be able to see that the Father would respond in this way. and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate the fatted calf idea noblemen stately men they had cattle they had farms and they would have a fatted calf and that fatted calf would be reserved for the wedding of their older son the greek here meaning is really it's a grain fed corn fed cattle it's it's prime the best And we're bringing it out for this son? You're bringing out the wedding robe for this son who has just shamed you and done everything not what he's supposed to do? And you're giving him what the older son should be getting? The fatted calf as well? But this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And now we get to the part where the older son comes into the picture. Now, this older son lives in the father's house. This older son is around the dad. This older son is carrying out responsibilities. But this older son is failing in this story, according to Middle Eastern culture. Because this older son should have never let the exchange take place where the estate was divided up. Because you see, the older son had a responsibility for the rest of the children. So the older son isn't rising up to sort of intervene here. Culturally, this, the, the, the older son is... Yeah, there's, there's got to be a reason the, the Pharisees and scribes must be thinking. And in the Middle Eastern culture, it is this older son's responsibility... To put on the family affairs. To put on the family celebrations. But um, he's in the field. And he draws near to the house and he hears music and dancing. He hadn't organized anything. And he called one of the servants over and he's asking, uh, what's going on? What sort of a relationship does the father have With the older son, who's around, he's around. Why didn't the father include the son, the older son, in the celebrations for his younger brother? Could it be that the older son, he's there in prison. He does all the right things, but he has no relationship with the father. He doesn't understand the whole the father's heart. He doesn't give a rip about what the older father really wants to do. But he wants the older father to kick the bucket so he can take his place and be in charge of the estate. So he calls one of the servants and asks what this meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Is that not the posture of the legalist? If you don't know, it is, because I was a legalist. When I met Paso, I was a legalist. You had to work things off. God could not just accept you the way you were. Oh, yes, he died for your sins, but, but, but surely you've got to behave then. Surely you've got to live a certain way. You weren't allowed to dance and drink and smoke and do all these sort of things because, you know, you couldn't do those things. And if you did do those things, well, yeah, you're you're not you're not really a Christian. The legalist gets angry. And what he does is he refuses to participate. The Pharisees and the scribes got to be going, finally, finally someone who gets it. Finally, someone is going to bring some sense into this story. For goodness sake, the father has been an absolute dropkick. How can he be so kind and so right? He's going against everything, every cultural behavior and attitude that we've set in place that was established. Finally, the son's angry. Good, right, right. The Pharisees must be thinking. And he's not going into the party. Good. He shouldn't go into the party. This son has come back and now the dad is using more resources of the older brother to celebrate the younger brother. No. That's wrong. That shouldn't be done. But he was angry and he refused to go in and get this, guys. We can't miss this. Verse 28 His father came out and entreated him. Friends, that right there in Middle Eastern times is not on. You see, this celebration that's happening in the house, yeah, it's it's about the sun. But the celebration, the real celebration is for the dad, because the dad is the one who's being celebrated, that he would show these acts of mercy, that he would be this kind, that he would restore full reconciliation to his son who doesn't deserve it. That's what this party is about. He's the guest of honor. And in Middle Eastern times, you don't leave the celebration And the anger and the way that their son's behaving, because he's shaming the dad. Do you know what the dad had the right to do? The dad had the right to order his son to be beat. Taken out the front and beat by the community because he shamed his dad. But instead, we read that God, the father, well, the father leaves the party to entreat of his son what guys do you see how 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 jesus went Uh, uh, god you know this father in this story he runs out to grab his son to embrace him and kiss him he's come home he's lost and he's found see how the father acted there have you seen how the father acted with the hypocrite with the legalist He still takes the shame. He still goes out to the party and entreats, pleads, walks alongside of his son and says, son. And the response that the the father gets, the response that the father gets is, look, these many years I've served you. Now just stop right there because you know what? Notice, the younger son says, father, give me what I owe. This one here, the older son, doesn't even show his dad any respect, any honor. Give me. Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed you. The legalist rolls out. I used to say to Pastor, oh, I've done this and I've done that. Uh, that we roll out our accreditation. We roll out our accomplishments. We deserve it. We deserve entry into the kingdom of God because of look at all the things I did. These many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young, a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But then, but then, this son of yours comes who has devoured this property with prostitutes. Isn't that like the legalist to hang out everybody else's dirty laundry and to call out their sin and to humiliate whatever? I mean, you could hear it. You can hear the way that the son said in prostitutes. I mean, and you're going to kill the fatted calf for him? And the father said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Jesus is a master storyteller. He's drawn these Pharisees and scribes and tax collectors and sinners into this story. And this is the first time I think that the tax collectors and the scribes come face to face with who they are. Son, you're always with me. Pharisees and scribes, you're always with me. You're studying the law. You're rewriting it. And all that I'm writing about is yours. Will you come into the party? It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Story's over. Boom. What happens? Is he going to go in? Is the older son going to go in? We don't know. But what we do know is that culturally, this father should have beaten both of his sons. But instead what he does, instead what he does is he takes their shame. He takes their shame And he goes after them. He takes their beating. He dies in their place. That's unexpected. That is surprising. It's lavish and it's generous. You might be familiar with that story. And you may have learned a few things this morning about Middle Eastern ways. But this word is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. But I want to ask you, have you forgotten how lavish the Father's love is? Have you grown accustomed and, un- and just comfortable with his grace or are you still surprised by his grace? Are you trying to work your way? Are you trying to work your way to please God and hoping that you'll get in a better position? Are you enforcing others to do things that aren't in God's word? Are you trying to erect walls? You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to be better. You've got to be better. And yet that's not in scripture. I love this parable. And I love it because it reminds me of who I am and who he is. His joy is for the lost. Can I pray with, would you pray with me? And as you bow your heads and you close your eyes, I want to ask you, did you ever ever expect the Father to go to these lengths? If not, that's okay, my friend. But this is what brings the Father joy. He knows if you're running away from Him because you don't love Him, He knows if you're staying around him, but you don't love him. But the truth is, he went to great and lavish lengths to reconcile us. And it is good and right to celebrate. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and your word. I thank you, Lord, for the example. And the revelation of who you are in this story. You are a good father. You are the father in this story. Who loves the lost. You love the lost that are running hard and fast away from you. And you love the lost. The legalists and the hypocrites who are around. And everything that you have is. For them. Lord would you minister to us this morning as we. Consider the lost. Increase our love and our delight and our joy in seeing the lost come home. Use us, Lord, to testify of what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray.